everyone. I'm Joanne Berry, special educator. And I'm Dr. Candida Fink. And this is Mental Health Goes to School, where a teacher and a psychiatrist walk into a podcast. You hear a lot about teen mental health and how students struggle at school. But accurate and useful information is hard to find. Over the years, Candida and I have had many conversations and learned from each other's experiences. We realize that we need more people in such a critical conversation. Join us as we talk to and learn from educators, mental health professionals, and parents with a wide range of experiences and expertise. morning, Candida. How are you on this Saturday morning? Oh, just peachy, <laughs> ready to go. All right. Well, today we are speaking with someone we're really excited to talk about, Robin Kogan, known on social media and other places as the Relentless School Nurse. Um, she has done tremendous amounts of writing, educating, and advocacy um, for the role of school nurses, um, in helping kids, families, and communities, and particularly around the issue of uh, safety, school safety, um, and a particular focus on gun violence and that how that plays such a, a key role in our safety conversation. Um, so Robin, welcome. Well, thank you. I am so honored to be here and so happy to meet you in a semi-real life <laughs> capacity. <laughs> I know, I know quite right since since the world is different this this feels much more real than uh yeah. than a lot of things um so yeah so tell us I sort of gave just some of your highlights but if tell us a little bit about you and what you've been doing yeah so I have been a nurse so I think this is my 39th year and I have been a school nurse this is the beginning of my 23rd year so more than half of my career I have spent in school nursing uh, prior to becoming a nurse, I studied art therapy. And so a lot of my focus in my nursing career has been psych, uh, certainly in terms of school, um, school nursing and school communities, having that background has been really helpful. I would imagine. Uh, I also do a lot of work in gun violence prevention and school safety. I, I had I saw that on your the background. I and I hadn't realized that before that you were an art therapist previously in a previous iteration. Um that's very exciting. My mom was a music therapist, so I grew up oh, around so a you lot know of creative creative therapies. Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. Thanks to Reagan, though, I went to nursing school. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, meaning all those kinds of services were just uh, you know, no longer important. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, school nursing, I think, Joanne, right, we were talking, as you were talking about your nurse at your school, is at really at the center of the conversation we're having, right, a mental health right. in school. Yeah. Um, so what what are you finding? Sort of what, what, I mean, that's a really big question, but what are some of the things on the ground that you and your colleagues that you're talking about when you're talking about mental health and uh, the role of the school nurse and what you're doing there, what you're seeing? Well, it's a big question, and I guess we can look at life before COVID, during COVID, and after COVID. Is that sounds you know, great? That that makes sense. Yeah, kind of on the continuum. Um, yeah. I want to say that prior to COVID, school nurses spent up to thirty-five percent of our time on mental health issues. Now, during COVID, you know, the world really went through a collective trauma, and then I can't say this is in the beyond COVID time, because we're still dealing with COVID. Absolutely. But our definitely our um, mental health visits in school health offices has increased tremendously. Waiting for the data to come out on that. Mm -hmm. um, but we spend a good deal of our time on mental health concerns. And, you know, it's so important when school nurses, first of all, they need to be present to make a difference, right? Mm -hmm. So from the beginning, I do need to let you know that you know, 25% of schools in this country have no school nurse at all, mostly in the West and, and parts of the South. 
Um, there's really scattered coverage around school nursing. Less than 40% of schools have a full-time school nurse, but what that looks like could be one school nurse to several thousand kids. So our ratios are often untenable and it feels like we spend most of our time putting out fires, which is not what we want to do and is not the scope of our practice is so much greater than putting out fires. So mental health concerns have always been at the core of many of our visits. I cannot believe that 25% of schools don't have nurses. That that to me, That's a stunning statistic to me. And then 60% of schools either have none or only a part-time school nurse. Yeah, so it's less than 40% have full-time. And if you look across states, you know, the laws are different in every state, even within a state. For example, the state of Florida, um, it's by county. So some counties might have a school nurse in every building, although that's rare. Some counties might have none. So the, you know, employing school nurses, unfortunately, is an easy budget cut for some school districts. It's very unfortunate, but that's what they cite. Um, and certainly since COVID, Truthfully, our school nursing workforce has has decreased because people have retired, they have resigned, they have left much like the rest of nursing. School nursing has been impacted tremendously because of COVID. Wow. Burned out too, right? Some component of, of just that's it. Taking retirements sooner than they might have. It just it, that's been what I read. And it sounds like that's what you're seeing. They're just you're emptying your your ranks are emptying. You know, there was um, a really significant, uh, disturbingly significant survey done in March of 2022. It was just looking at a two-week period in terms of the mental health of school nurses across the United States. So it was a national survey. Almost 8,000 school nurses responded. And let me say there's about 95,000 school nurses in the country. So about 8,000 responded. It was a 121 item survey. I actually remember getting it uh, and doing it. I was fascinated by the questions. And the findings were very, very concerning. 30% um, of the school nurses reported PTSD. 24% reported moderate to severe depression. 22% reported anxiety during this two week period impact by, impacted by COVID and 4% reported suicidal ideation. So almost half reported at least one symptom of adversity in a mental health condition during COVID. So, you that know, is... we're still rec recovering sure. from all that's happened. That, I mean, that's remarkable to, you know, the, as so many caregiver professions were, have been so drained, but the, you know, you are frontline with, with kids, um, to, to see that being just drained like that, the internal resources of our caregivers being just sort of hurt in such ways, harmed in those ways to feel. You know, harmed is really the operative word because of, of what was reported, almost 50% of the school nurses reported that they felt bullied, threatened, and harassed. Um, many reported discrimination. And then 24% received job-related threats. Wow. So, you know, these are, you know, we have to acknowledge the harm that was done. Yes. And how do we repair these ruptured relationships? Because truthfully, many of the ruptured relationships are between school nurses and staff who yeah. felt that we weren't doing enough and school nurses and parents who felt right. like we were doing too much. So interesting. Mm -hmm. Right. And the, so there, there you are in the middle, that sort of impossible bind. Right. You're doing yes. too much to like nobody's nobody's pleased. And you're and you're already stretched beyond capacity doing trying to do the best. And everyone's unhappy, whatever you're doing. That's that's a recipe for burnout. That is harm for sure. Yeah, there was the, the CDC and NASA and the National Association of School Nurses teamed up for this uh, really necessary and troubling but eye opening survey. And there were some. Uh, recommendations that came mm -hmm. from the survey that really would benefit all schools and students. Because let's face it, if we have dysregulated staff and dysregulated kids, we cannot help each other, right? Yeah. Dysregulated adults cannot help a dysregulated child. 
Absolutely. Right. right. Yep. So, so what were some of those recommendations? Well, one of the big ones was that include school nurses and decision-making about school health, especially during global pandemics and public health crises. You know, we, we have so much knowledge and experience that goes untapped. Uh, actually, school nursing is often called the hidden healthcare system, but it really shouldn't be. We are uh -huh. there if we are there. Of course, again, we need to be there to make a difference. But that was one of the big um, findings is include school nurses in decision making. School nurses should be leaders in their school district. You know, in my school district, there is a chief of talent. There's a chief of schools. There's a chief of staff. Why isn't there a chief well-being officer? That should be a school nurse. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Like you say, yeah. I mean, some of the other uh, recommendations were, you know, helping school nurses, school principals, and others to recognize the signs and symptoms of stress and depression in the adults, in the team members, mm -hmm. and encourage us all to seek professional help. And then designate professional development days to really look at the impact of stress skill building, building resilience, helping to, you know, diffuse some of the very high tension um, things that can happen in school. School can really be a boiling pot. And then always let's hire staff to meet the need of our students. You know, we are really so, so stretched. We should be working in teams. It should be an interprofessional school health services team, not a single school nurse trying to deal with thousands of students by themselves. Excellent point. Um, at my school, which is, um, we have 75 or 80 kids, 30 staff, we do work in teams. And, and very often, you know, a message will go out, you know, about a student who's having a particularly tough time and whether or not you have that student in class, or in your advisory, it's like the message often ends with or begins with, it takes a village. Yeah. Um, so even if you just see that student in the hall and they're, you know, you can just say, hey, good morning, you know, or or whatever it is, I mean, we're all promotes, there. Right, that promotes a sense of connectivity and belonging. And that right. is the key for creating that kind of environment where kids feel accepted and where adults feel accepted. You know, the CDC right. suggested yeah. that schools need to support the evidence-based policies, you know, practices, programs for health and emotional well-being of students, but also of school employees. Right. And that's where we miss the mark over and over again. I know things need to be student-focused 100%, but if the adults are not okay, that will translate into great difficulties with students. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. It's essential. Yeah. Well, it's, it's essential. Oxygen, put on your own oxygen mask first before trying to help somebody else. Because exactly. if you can't breathe, then you're no good. Right. I mean, could you imagine, like, I'm just thinking of like the, you know, the public schools around me, like, you know, you have your guidance teams or your mini, you know, like houses within big high schools that if each house had their own school nurse, or each advisory team, you know, when you're talking about big schools had a nurse or, you know, nurse covered one or two of those as opposed to the whole building and could be at those meetings and bring their expertise. Um, it could be a game changer for a lot of things. For so much. Yeah. Right, right. Wow, really just underutilized, right? I mean, yes. that, underappreciated. Way underappreciated and, and disrespected so often. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's, you know, very much been the story of school, school nursing for a long time. And I think the pandemic you know, showed how critical they were, how critical school nurses are to function and health of kids um, and the school people of the whole building. But all they got was, you know, beaten up about it, <laughs> you know, well, from, you know, all, from all sides. <laughs> I mean, just healthcare in general, in the beginning, we, you know, we were all heroes. We went from hero to zero, as they say, as the pandemic just went on and on and on, the, 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 the finger pointing started. But the truth is what we tried our best to do was to keep everybody's children safe. And safety, school safety is front and center, whether it's the thought of a possible, you know, school shooting or the impact of active shooter drills or an invisible virus like COVID. 
you know, school safety is really at the center, should be at the center of all these decisions that are made. What can we do to keep our kids safe? Not just keep them safe, but feeling safe and being safe, you know, are two very different things. And that psychological safety component is really under examined. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and they, it's it's a siloed, right? Wouldn't you say, Joanne? I mean, it's there's there's academics, and then there's health, or and and then even further siloed out is mental health, right? And it's just the idea that if you don't take, I mean, right, that you have to be taking care of health and mental health, you know, that's the foundation for learning. It's not like an an added, you know, an afterthought. That is that is that foundation, that feeling safe. Which, as you say, right, can be... right, which which we've um, talked with some of our other guests about as well. But um, but just, I mean, I'm sure people who aren't in a school every day might have a different idea of what school <laughs> safety might actually look like. Because some people are like, well, you got to harden the exit, the entrances, and have metal detectors and stuff like that. Well, you bring up an excellent point because that is, you know, school safety is a three billion with a B dollar unregulated industry. And when I look at what they looked at as public health safety or mitigation strategies in school during COVID, things that we know were not studied and did not work like those, I don't want to curse, those plexiglass uh, shields we had all over without ever saying, you know, because COVID was airborne, guess what? That just went right up and over those plexiglass shields. I had a a student tell me it was their cone of loneliness when they were behind their their shields. So just I throw that in there because I just thought that my heart broke when he told me that. I was like, so and we knew it didn't work. I mean, if it worked, we went thing, but it didn't work. And everybody knew it didn't work. And neither does, you know, hardening schools doesn't work. What works is softening schools, creating environments where everybody feels included, a sense of belonging. You know, I I love the term you have to um, Maslow before you bloom. Yes. You know, you really have. We talk about that a lot. Right. Don't you come up to come up with that a lot? I mean, kids have to feel and adults. They have to have our physiological needs met. Did we have breakfast? Did we have a good sleep? Do we have a place to sleep? Are our clothes clean? You know, is is do we have an incarcerated parent? Am I new to this country and sleeping with groups of families in the same, you know, several few rooms? Do I have you know, the next level then would be safety. Do I feel emotionally and physically safe here? Uh, And then belonging and all of those things before you really can learn. Yep, 100%. I mean, well, and and I was going to say for someone who doesn't, you know, isn't in a school on a regular basis, you know, parents, people in the community, you know, legislators who, who want to do the right thing, but... And it, and it seems like the obvious thing, oh, well, you have to have metal detectors. That'll take care of a lot of things when that's the opposite, like you just said. So in an ideal world, what what would, from a nursing and safety perspective, what what would uh, the, the ideal safe school look like? I love that question. Well, first of all, from a physical safety perspective, I think schools need to get on board. And this is happening across the country with asking parents to please use safe storage because almost 5 million kids in this country living within homes where guns are unsafely stored. 5 million. 70%, I think it's 70% of all school shooters get their guns from home. And when you look at the fact that gun violence is the number one cause of death of children zero to 19 in this country, how are we not taking every single action we can to focus on safe storage? So in my ideal world, and I have been working on this, providing gun locks, using that harm reduction model of education with equipment, you know, not asking too many probing questions, really focusing on what what our strengths are. Can we bring safety, what it really means into the school? So from the gun violence prevention perspective, it's really educating families about safe storage, about asking when your kid is going on to, you know, to a play date, 
you know, asking, is there an unlocked and, and loaded gun in this house? My kid is a very curious kid. You know, my pediatrician told me to ask that because just like I'm asking about food allergies, I'm going to ask about this. You right. know, we have to normalize, normalize these conversations. Right. right? And and creating environments where school where students feel welcome and that they belong and that they are not being judged. It's really turning discipline on its head. It's looking at it from a completely different point of view, teaching kids how their brain works so that they can learn to self-regulate. Learning as an adult how to co-regulate with your students, but checking yourself first. You know, sometimes in schools, things get really, really heated and teachers don't always do a great job of bringing down the temperature. You know, we need to be a thermostat and not a thermometer. Thermostats can, right? Lower like that, yeah. temperatures. We Out, all outstanding. need to do that. It's an outstanding way of thinking about it, right? Responding and sort of reading what's happening not not and then and then once the thing has happened went way after time not in the middle of it because whoever calmed down because you told them to calm down <laughs> never 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 in the history of things in the world ever <laughs> no world. ever but once it's over you know helping the the student and the adult say hey let's like kind of review what happened what happened right before that like look at the events that right, like led up to it how if that were to happen again it's a safety plan that's what right. we're asking for right. you know we need a school safety plan as a school and as individual members of a school community because yeah. I know what gets me charged up and I have to check myself. Somebody told me once that school nurses have to be the solid object in the room. <laughs> you have to be the grounded, solid. <laughs> right. I love that. I yeah. love that. And and I think that teaching more adults in the building that idea so that the, <laughs> the school nurses don't end up having to be the only one because that's such an emotional uh, task and, uh, you know, sort of mental load burden to be the one person sort of trying to hold it together in a space where things are dysregulating that, you know, full circle to that conversation about helping kids. I mean, helping the adults in the building, giving them skills for regulation and emphasizing and coaching and training about how fundamental that is for everyone to feel safe and that, you know, escalating all the things you said, I'm just emphasizing because I see it over and over again. And the kids I work with, the schools I consult to where we get into these, you know, back and forth that were really never necessary to, to escalate to that point. Um, These power struggles are are very destructive and I have to include parents. You know, we've had incidences where parents come to school, you know, to to actually uh, um, confront a student or parents come to school to confront each other. You know, yeah. a lot of school violence happens in the in the parking lot before they right. even enter the building. There, look at all the violence that's happening at football games on Friday nights or at right. sporting events. You right. know, this is this is schools are not in a bubble. They were never in a bubble no. during COVID, and they're not in a bubble now about school safety. Schools are. You know, they what's happening in school really represents what's happening in the surrounding community. So if you have a dysfunctional right. school, you have trouble in your community. Absolutely. That's a, a, a very excellent point. And I mean, just for just, you know, many, if not most communities value their schools and are proud in some way of their school. But if that sort of activity is going on in the wider community, you know, the parents, the, I don't know, fans, if they're not parents, you know, going to games and stuff, that that definitely would contribute to a less safe feeling for many students. It's like the parents can't even they manage can't themselves. themselves together, right, right. Yeah. And the other piece of it is, you know, I'm just going to say what's very present is yes. the politicization, am I saying that wrong, of education. It has yes, yes. become a political Gosh. football and it is being overrun by people with very concerning agendas, whether it's book banning, the, the disrespect of LGBTQ plus students, Gosh. you know, transphobia, homophobia, uh, racism. I mean, it, it's it is 
astounding to me what's happening in this country. And it's folk and a lot of things are happening at school board meetings. You know, know. we have to look hyper local. Who is on your school board? Who is running for your local school board? We have to be active at local level. We have to, you know, even if we don't have kids in the school anymore, or even we didn't, it's part the community and the schools, they are, schools are not a bubble. They are central to the function of the whole community. And so if we care we about our community. symbiotic relationship and people don't want to acknowledge that, but it's the truth. Right, right. But Well, and, and I mean, I'm a, I, I teach English um, or I say I teach executive function disguised as English. Oh, I love that. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, uh, the Library Association, the National Library Association, every fall has been book week. And I always do a big bulletin board about it. Don't necessarily spend a ton of time about on it because we, in my school, I make sure we have all the banned books available for anyone who wants to read them because we do have a lot of students who are um, LGBTQ plus and other aspects of being marginalized, which most of the books seem to fall in those categories lately. But it has been noted that that is an organized effort by a small number of people, which therefore makes it all the much more important for folks who think your kid could read whatever book you say they can um, to be involved. Right. Pay attention to the school board. Pay attention to right. what the policies are in your um, school libraries, because ideally, uh, a school system would have a policy if a book is challenged, here's the review process and here's what what we're going to do. And there's no appeal. You know, it's like a bunch of people reviewed the book. OK, maybe fourth grade isn't the right place for that. But right. in the high school, no problem. Right. And it's fair to make assessments about books and to have public commentary on it, but to have small groups of people sort of mandating based on, you know, whatever their narrow views are. This, of course. And it should not be the right. loudest voice. It, it's very dangerous. And your point about small groups of people, I don't want to get this data point wrong, but I believe I saw an article that there were a thousand uh, requests for books to be banned in a certain area, and it was only done by 10 people. Right. I, I saw it. It was something like that. Yeah, it's very close to that. And, mm-hmm. yeah. and um, once you dig down into that, it's like, ooh. Who are those? Doesn't reflect our community, and that that would, as you said, affect the feeling of safety for students and adults in the building. Because that's a big thing too with this politicization: is the adults are not necessarily feeling safe. It's like, oh, this book that I've had in my classroom for ten years, can I still have that? Will I get in trouble? I mean, there are teachers who have gotten in trouble for showing works of classic art. David, right? Right. That's right. I I think they lost their job. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think she, I think I saw a thing about that. And the the curator at the museum in Italy invited invited them over to to see it for (laughs) real. To see it for real. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I think when people find out what's going on, when these stories become clear, I think most of us all want to have a communal, safe, interconnected, right? The sense of belonging. Nobody wants or not nobody, obviously, but, you know, most people want kids to feel safe and welcome um, and part of their community in school. And this move to other kids or or you know or adults but to to make other or different or less than is just such a fundamental threat to our children's ability to feel safe in a school setting to learn to and to build their own emotional health i mean that's this is a key time when their emotional regulation and interpersonal stuff is developing all throughout k to 12 and so if all they're doing is survival and holding on how that we're losing all that time when the brain needs to be making new connections and learning. And that time is so precious. And, and really the goal is for students to flourish, right? Not just survive. We want students to flourish and we want to create environments where that is possible. And all of these outside forces are disrupting what could be so impactful for our students. And so you know, whether it's the physical environment, the social environment, the emotional environment, 
the the structure around the school these things are critical to get right and we're not doing a good job no um i was just looking i was looking at some of the notes you sent us i was curious about uh dr Lori day Sautels. Oh, you I've... will love her work <laughs> that's the tells yeah she that's she tell created, okay she has created she's first of all it's well-researched. She's been in this work for decades. She's created this new way of thinking called applied educational neuroscience, where it, it, it really teaches the adults and the students how their brain works, all the systems of the body. She has reimagined what school discipline looks like. I am such a big fan of her work, and she is internationally known out of uh, Butler University in Indiana. Okay. Her work is phenomenal. Bring that to your school. She is, she She's is a treasure. Uh, just a really valuable person. Yeah, I saw you were saying things like calming stations or amygdala oh, those reset. Say, amygdala reset. Like teach kids the names of the pieces of parts of their brain that will help them. So, like there are districts, there are schools that have amygdala reset stations in their classrooms. Things Love to help that. kids center, help kids you know, regu co-regulate with another adult or even possibly learning that wonderful self-regulation. You know, kids, when they are in their amygdala, right, when they are in that part of their brain that it is a trauma response, the only thing that really will get to them, it's not words, it's sensory things, it's breath, it's walking, even pounding on a pillow. It's anything but talking to them. Right. Talking just... I say that every word you say, this is my stop talking parent intervention for adults is stop because the more words, the more you're escalating that amygdala, that limbic system response, you know? So, but that's, I think that's so important to be teaching and, and consent sort of broadly in the sort of school setting, the whole uh, culture of the school, that we're all learning about how brains work and how that stuff is so essential. Right. She has a 180 day curriculum. So one lesson for every single day of school uh, okay. teaching the supplied educational neuroscience. In fact, this, the Department of Education of Indiana adopted her plan as yeah. a statewide uh, program. So there's people doing incredible work in this area. Really uh, and it's it's exciting. Um, there There's a, a wonderful nurse I know in Pennsylvania who teamed up with her school counselor because she was noticing, the nurse was noticing based on data that she collected that she was seeing more, so many kids coming with somatic complaints that ended up really being things like anxiety, depression, other stress, home stress, test anxiety, whatever it was, but they were manifesting physically, right? And so she teamed yeah. up with her school counselor. They happened to be working, taking a class together on social emotional learning in a graduate program. So perfect time to, to team up on a class project. Yeah. And she devised the together, they devised this whole series of training students and staff on uh, methods to co-regulate and self-regulate. She also, which is so brilliant, it started to include emotions on her health office pass. So the point is to teach kids what they're feeling. Maybe their body is feeling one way, but what is their heart or their brain feeling? Is that tummy ache really, are you homesick? Are you worried? Are you stressed? You know, and obviously as in older grades, you make it uh, age appropriate, but it just... Those small steps help kids identify their emotions. That grounding kids and understanding what they're experiencing is a lifelong skill. Okay, 100%. Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean, my students are high school age and, and some of them still have difficulty articulating. It's like, oh, my, you know, my stomach is really bothering me. It's like, well, is it because you didn't eat? because you ate something that you shouldn't have eaten, or is it because you're worried about something in school or outside of school? Um, and so some people can link that and some cannot. So Getting, that is definitely yeah. a very valuable skill. Once Tra you identify it, you can it. deal with it. Um, but one of the things that I'm noticing from what you're telling us is that a lot of these type of things do not have to take a ton of time because that's one thing so that 
in the school day. We only have X amount of time. And also that a lot of it is foundational, that if you do take the time at the start of the school year, at the start of the day, what whatever it might be, it is well worth it in the long run. Right. So I, I think I'm reading that. I think I'm hearing that correctly. You are hearing that 100% correctly. It's not a check off. Uh, oh, I did this training. I'm going to check that box. It's actually a culture of schools to embrace. It's healing centered right. engagement is really what it is. And it's creating environments where children and, and adults can thrive together. It's changing how school is done. I'm not saying taking away testing and taking away the typical things, but the environment around those things really needs to change. Students will show us their best side and they'll show us their worst side. That does not make them bad kids. It right. makes them upset. It makes them, that is a symptom of something else going on. They will act out against us. Absolutely. It feels that way, but it's a symptom of a deeper issue happening. And so when you really begin, when your school begins to embrace this understanding that we can encourage self-regulation and co-regulation, which will improve the sense of feeling safe, that psychological safety piece, then you know, the dynamics in the classroom can change. The dynamics of the school building can change. It is definitely a new way of approaching school and it's necessary. Uh, 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 it has to evolve. It has, it is necessary. It has to move this way. We're, we can't continue in the way that and we're we going. certainly can't go back because when going back, even prior to COVID things were really beginning to devolve, weren't they? Absolutely. COVID right. was only right. took it from when you look at the, the data on kids, mental health, um, you know, it was already tanking for tanking. years and, um, it just, the, the pandemic just really brought some things to a true head or, or just sort of, you know, much more visible in some ways to people, but it, it was, this is not new. This is not but it's, new. It's students' mental health tanking, but so are their parents and so are their teachers sure. and yeah. so is our community. And so well, I was going to say everyone had almost everyone anyway, had some effect, particularly if you have children in your life, either in your own home, because they're your children, mm -hmm. or um, you work with with kids and teens. Um, we definitely saw that more, but right. not to say that adults who don't, there, I mean, there was just so much. We were all, we were all disrupted. We were all yeah. disrupted so and much. And it amplified what was already present, right? Exactly. The lack yeah. of safety was present. Adversity, impact of poverty, social determinants of health. You know, I have a school, a, a nurse friend. I'll never forget when she, I said something about social determinants of health and she looked me in the eye and she said, you mean social determinants of death, don't you? And I thought, wow, she's right. They wow. are the social determinants of death. Wow, yeah. That's a you know, really powerful reframe. It really reframed my whole look at that what we powerful. say so off, off our tongue. It rolls so easily off our tongue. Social determinants of health. Each of those things has a tremendous impact, especially on a, a growing child that we should never take for granted. You know, why aren't we providing fresh food in school for our kids? What fresh, clean water, clean environments, good air quality. You know, this past week, we had to close school every single day because of the heat wave. So our yeah. very first week of school, we only had half days because none of, not all of our buildings are fully air conditioned. Right. right. And that's getting to. And that was all over the to, country. Right. Right. Well, a lot of places. But between, um, yeah, the the fires that are spreading mm -hmm. the smoke and stuff and the increasing temperatures in general. Um, and like you said, not all buildings, because in my own community, I was on a school building committee. It was 20 years ago. And there was one building where like we're not air conditioning it. That's I mean, the library, the offices. It was a budget thing at the time. And plus, it's not that hot. We're in New England, whatever. But then the next building we did is like, oh, we better better put air conditioning in here because it's just getting hotter. And there's more expectation of using buildings year round than there used to be. Right. Well, I'm in I'm in Camden, New Jersey. That's where I'm a school nurse right outside of Philly. And our buildings are very old. We have some newly 
new newly open buildings, which is great, but many of our buildings are more than a hundred years old. Right. Same in many um many particularly urban invested. areas. We have not yeah, invested right. in these communities. That is structural racism. Yeah. The soil in which our children are growing literally in these communities is impacted by those social determinants. Yep. 100%. We have, yeah. uh, right. they, um, I think it went through despite a lot of opposition in my town um, near a building, a set of buildings that are, you know, full of kids, uh, marginalized community, you know, minoritized communities. And they decided to put in a drive-through Starbucks right off of the 95 and we there were studies clearly showing how it was going to worsen the air quality in those buildings all these kids already have higher risk of asthma and lung conditions um and it went through it went yeah. through and I, I, despite loud pretty vocal protest um in our community and it just it's and you think about those kids now they're going to spend more time <laughs> sick you know mm -hmm. Um, out of school, out of school, out of yeah. school, not learning. It just and not to mention, I'm guessing there's like 20 other Starbucks in town. Yes, and of so course it, the ones in the in the in the communities that are more you know big single homes. Nobody put a drive through there, right? You know, so it just yeah. There's a million, you know, but they want to get the people off the highway, and because it's right near I-95. Yeah. So well, you can thank the lobbyists because they yeah. certainly wield their power in such unfortunate ways. But that's, you know, education, school, mental health, you know, child development. We're all these are all domains that are, you know, seen as less important than whatever the current sort of financial gains are. And that investment long term. Um, in kids' brains, kids' growth, which, you know, fundamentally safety is, you know, it's it's the start. You can't do anything until kids feel safe. But all of this is just shunted aside and there's very little political will for investing, investing in it. You know, it's the same pre the, the knowledge, the data about preschool interventions and early, uh, early infancy, early, you probably well aware of this data, right? That, yeah. yeah, that you, you get people in there and you get supports for families. And you provide quality. It twenty years later, the benefits remain powerful, and the data is crystal clear. And there, so I, I'm, a, I'm a preschool nurse now, and I and I love it. And I tell my parents um, that, and I've read I've read this. There's there's research on this, but that there are only two thousand days between the day a child is born and the day they start kindergarten. That's it. Wow. That's it. Interesting way to put it, right? To think yeah. about yeah. it. And then, yeah. and that's, and when you look at that, even when you're in the midst of raising babies and toddlers and, you know, preschoolers, it seems so overwhelming, but it's so short and it's the most impactful time. In fact, my daughter's having a baby. I'm having my first oh, grandchild. Congratulations. So excited. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm sending her all this information. <laughs> She's she she's a preschool music teacher. She loves, oh, I love loves that. that age. She's su she's super uh, into learning all these things. Um, and those first sixty days, I mean, they're just foundational. All of it. So yeah. And that, that when we're talking about co-regulation, you know, mm -hmm. that is that is the period brain growth wise where some the foundations of emotional regulation, self soothing, and that all happens in in the connection with caregivers does not be a single caregiver but in connection with adult caregivers um that uh that you're laying the foundations for regulation so for kids who are you know um it, we just have those 2000 days for opportunities so supporting kids and families to make those times safe right cuz safety is a huge part of that learning to self regulate the infant and toddler must feel safe um, so it all just full circle from pre-K all the way up to the, you know, the high school kids, that yeah. notion, their learning and their growth is going to be so fundamentally affected by a sense of safety. And, 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 and the good news though, is that if, if that time period is disrupted or tragedy strikes or things happen and, you know, many, many, uh, crises occur, 
we can still impact kids in higher grades by focusing on their strengths, mm-hmm. you know, oh, yes. right. Focusing big time. on the big strengths, time. connecting them to, a, you know, a trusted person in the building that can really shepherd them along those, even those momentary interactions go such a long way yeah. um, to, to change a, a, the, the trajectory of a child's journey to school. It's yeah. huge really is that point of sometimes that's all I'll ask for when I write a letter requesting a recommendation or, you know, accommodations, maybe just simply, you know, I don't even need extended time. I need a point of contact adult for this child. They need someone to be able to sort of go to a trusted person that they can talk because it is, you know, that can be such a a, a sort of resiliency or recovery sort of intervention. And yes, there's, there's so much we can do. Absolutely. It's not, uh, that's a really good point that you bring up. It's not uh, kids are can be resilient and can recover and can grow, but we always have to be attentive to their needs. Um, you know, prioritizing their safety and their mental health and health needs as part of helping them grow into you know people living lives they want to live, healthy, safe lives, being part of our citizenry and you know ways that work for all of us. It comes right back to that, you know helping kids feel safe and making sure they're healthy and well. Absolutely. We have not yet touched on social media, but that oh, is a, that's, a, that's like a 90 hour <laughs> discussion on its own. It is. It is. Uh, no, it's, but yeah, it definitely has had effects, um, especially on, well, hopefully the older students, but still younger kids. And there was just a study out now, screen time in the in the under one year affects yes. language development. What is, what is, why does that even happen? How is that possible? But it is. And then yeah. unfortunately, some parents think their kids are geniuses under one year because they can maneuver the iPad, but they shouldn't even be on the iPad. Yeah, before be- one, before yeah. one year, there'd be really yeah. no screens at all. Yeah. Um, but that's that was that was dramatic data. But the harm the, the harms, of course, consistent right with their developmental stage. And as they get into, you know, teenagerhood, it's it can be it can I read be quite really, dramatic. I read an interesting article, and I wish I could remember the 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 town it was in. But there was a town, small town, that got together and agreed as parents that they would not give their, I think it was like preteens self uh, smartphones. Right. Right. Would wait until some, a little bit older age. Yeah. They would not do it through those certain years. And it was like an agreement made by most of the people in this town. Wow. Uh, And it made a huge difference on the dynamics of the kids relationships with each other. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, right? Wow. It's, well, and it's just like, um, if you're, um, I hadn't been on public transportation for quite a while, and I was in New York City recently, and we did take the subway. It is quiet. Nobody's Because everybody's on their phone. Yeah. Not everybody, but a lot of people, compared to, you know, the days of when people carried their boom boxes around or just talked to one another. It just, not that much. How about going out to dinner? You look around and people, families, they're not talking. Uh, often, people. yeah, on on their devices. Yeah. So you're not in all. a social circumstance, but you're still socially isolated. hundred percent. Right. Yeah. And very much so. Like teens who are yeah. sitting in a group and texting each other across the group rather than speaking. I mean, it's sort of a, a funny joke or comic, but it happens. <laughs> right. It's well, not, and it's, I, I remember reading this was a while ago that the television show Friends couldn't couldn't wouldn't make sense now because you know they all come into the coffee shop and they talk to one another and they oh, talk that, to them. Oh, that's very interesting. Whereas now everyone would be on their phone, they'd be like, "Hey Ross, hey Rachel," <laughs> and then they go to their phone, and it just wouldn't be the same show. This, and they might not have met each other. Because I think some of them met in the coffee shop, or if they Probably. didn't, you know, yeah, some stories, yeah. some whole storylines where people meet in public places. Or they it just happens Uber. less and less. Or they'd use Uber Eats to even. That's get right. Them. They even wouldn't even be out in the coffee yeah. shop. That's right. 
So not to, not to bemoan all the change because of course, social media has lots of, you know, there is lots of potential positive power, sharing information, you know, getting, helping people feel less alone, you know, um, marginalized communities, uh, kids um, in particular, you know, finding each other where they would never imagine that anyone was like them. Um, Good information can be out there. So it's, and it's, oh, of course, I, it's, I, listen, I am a big proponent of, I'm still calling it Twitter. I will not call it that other letter, but um, I have met so many amazing in cross, you know, colleagues from cross sectors like you. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. That I have been able to enter spaces that I would have never been uh, able to enter before, um, right. especially around gun violence prevention and this work and right. incredible opportunities for people to open doors, to learn more about the role of the school nurse, what we can do, what we contribute. It has been a game changer. For sure. On that note, why don't you just uh, tell people where they can find you on social media? Mm-hmm. My goodness, is our time over already? I know, we're just about at the hour mark, Mike. That flew. So, oh yes, you can definitely find me on social media. I write my blog uh, called The Relentless School Nurse on relentlessschoolnurse.com, www.relentlessschoolnurse.com. My kids will laugh that I said www. <laughs> I still do that. Um, on Twitter or what's left of Twitter, um, I'm at Robin Kogan. And I have a Facebook page. You can look me up on the Relentless School Nurse. And same thing on Instagram. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. This was really a fabulous conversation. I know I learned a lot. And Same. I, yes. I think, you know, come to such critical points about how we need to be working together and having these conversations to, you know, how critical school is to kids' mental health, you know. Thank you, really. So, so I'm so appreciative of being invited. And I, I hope I added to your podcast i love um, i love what you're doing and you. uh, i'd love to swing back again please if you ever yeah. we would love that well you're one that we would and, and really for a better one i know right and you have added i mean you really just brought so much for all of us to think about our listeners to think about right. and as we're closing up listeners if you have you know we're going to list um in the show notes we'll list uh robin's resources or things that came up during our conversation and if you have thoughts or questions you can certainly drop us a, a note at our website www.mentalhealthgoestoschool.com um and so uh we'd love to hear more from listeners if you have thoughts or ideas about some of the things we spoke about or questions for us. Um, and otherwise I think, uh, we'll see you on the next, on the next uh, podcast. Right. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you, Robin. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Bye.